This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone, as always, is co-host Alan Niven. But this time, we have a little extra special uh, we have on the phone as well. Bobby Blotzer. Good day, sir, uh, Bobby and sir Alan. How are you both? What's happening? I'm good. How are you doing, Mitch? Alan, my old friend. How are you, you old cocker? Yeah. All the better for hearing your voice. Um, <laughs> people may not know this, but I used to hear it very, very often because we lived very close. And it was not uncommon for there to be a knock at the door at four o'clock in the morning. And I'd stagger downstairs with about two hours of sleep, open the front door. And there's my good friend and neighbor, Bobby Blotzer, with two huge styrofoam cups full of potion. And he goes, brought one for you. <laughs> well, that's almost correct. And it could be correct on certain nights. But that same story can be flipped around to where I would open my front door and there would be Alan saying, see that limousine in the front? Get your bag packed for three days. We're going in a Learjet cross country to see to see." Great white flag. I go, we just got home from the Guns N' Roses concert two hours ago. And off we go. So let's just say it's been a wild ride over the years. (laughs) True story. Should we tell them about the night we staggered into a, what looked like a military hospital under attack in Phoenix because I'd been kicked in the face. Oh, my God. And the the place looked like, you know, the dead were coming off the battlefield. And there's Bobby, bless his heart, guiding me through the the, uh, the hospital. And he had two big styrofoam cups, one for me and one for him. <laughs> well, seeing how Alan had a gash the size of the Grand Canyon on the side of his head with some chick that was sitting poolside when he swam up to say hello and just popped up from under the water and freaked her out. She thought it was a creature from the Black Lagoon and she kicked it right. right in the head and opened up his head. And that <laughs> made me freak out, but not enough to take the potions with, with us to keep us calm and believe yeah. me. And he's right about that hospital. It was the Dawn of the Dead, part four, you know? Oh, wow. totally. <laughs> Wow. So, well, Mitch, how are you doing well, today? Good. And so let, let, let me let me set the stage here uh, for for listeners. I mean, we are not interviewing anybody per se, but we do have a guest on the second part of the show that is going to be Desmond Child. And one of the reasons I had uh, Bobby come on is, first of all, we haven't heard from Bobby in probably two years or something like that. I mean, it's been very quiet, but... Desmond did write uh, a whole bunch of sh- a whole bunch of songs with Rat, including uh, "Loving You's a Dirty Job," "Giving Yourself Away," and one of my absolute favorites, "Shame, Shame, Shame." And of course, Alan, you and as as we've already established, were neighbors with with Sir uh, Bobby. And of course, we've got the Dirt movie, we've got some Motley Crue. There's all kinds of stuff to to talk about. Um, where would we? Where does everybody want to start, Bob? Do you, do you want to just give us an update on what you are doing? And I'll and I'll say this: uh, What are you doing professionally? Are are, are you going to be out drumming again? Uh, how's the back going? And I know the back was giving you issues. Are will there be Bobby behind a drum kit at some point soon? Twenty nineteen, twenty twenty. 
I don't know. Yeah, I'm looking at a few things right now. You know, we've been trying to get through this, you know, through all the hurdles and be heard in a truthful fashion with the court system from all the lies that were perpetrated in honest to God time from the likes of, you know, Juan Crucian and his attorney. It's been unbelievable and it's almost over. You know, and it's looking like they've they were successful along with their, you know, their uh, lawyer who knew this judge and letting the bullshit be heard. And um, so it's flipped. You know, it went from Warren and I owning that name along with Stephen until he lost it in 2002 for over 20 years to now getting controlled by. Juan Crucifer, you know, and uh, with his lying under oath and all the other schemes and scams those guys did to get it. And it's unreal for me to even contemplate. So it makes me not want to, you know, be in the business anymore very much. I love to play. I got some people behind me right now that are trying to motivate me to play. Carrie Kelly, Robbie Crane, a buddy of mine, Eddie, who is in a rat tribute band and, and uh, a couple other bands I've been sitting in with. But, you know, I'm enjoying being at home, honestly. I, I don't enjoy my head being cluttered with all the legal mumbo-jumbo and the money that it's cost and, the, you know, the headache. And well, anybody let, that's let, ever done that knows, man, it's a fucking nightmare. So, you know. Well, let, 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 let's kick it into positive plans and so on and so forth. And I, I would make the observation that in terms of enjoying being at home, Mr. Blotzer, is a master of enjoying himself at home. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, now, just 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 for the fans, I can't deny that. Just just for the listeners here for a second, because I put you two on this phone call. When was the last time you two actually spoke? And then let's go even further. When was the last time you were actually in a room together? I mean, are we looking at ten years, twenty years, thirty years, or what sort of the the chronology on that? Oh, God, no. I'd say I can't remember. I'm old and my brother. I, re- I remember. I've been home from a tour for several, you know, over the summer for about four days. Uh, I was just, you know, starting to sink into my sofa real comfortably. And then the phone rings and I saw it was Alan Kong. And I answered, I said, holy shit. What's happening? What are you doing? He's all... I'll be over in five minutes. I just started laughing. I said, well, what's going on? Where are you at? Are you still up in, in Arizona, up in northeastern Arizona? He was, I'll, I'll fill you in five minutes. And I, like, he hangs up. I'm looking at my old lady going, that was Alan Niven. And says it's going to be here in five minutes. Five minutes later, ding dong. I'm like, no way. This, and there he was. And he, he was there for about another week and a half. So that was, wow. <laughs> I think that was 2004. <laughs> So uh, yeah, we, we we caught up on the phone not so long ago. Um, As well, yeah, yeah. But that was the last time we saw each other. Was two Yeah, it's been too long since I've seen your ugly face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's great. But um, I'll ask you this, Alan. You know, with Rat being back in the day, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong. You lived with Don Dawkin, and Bobby was the neighbor, correct? Right next door. Okay, so yeah. as the scene was exploding and the Motley crews were going and the rats were going, why at some point did you not turn your attention to Rat and say, 
I got to sign these guys or, or Bobby, was it, no, we're already signed. Sorry, Alan, you, you can't have us. Are you, are you kidding me? First, first of all, rat, we're going after big time managers. Okay. And secondly, I lived right next door to Bobby. So he actually, he, here's, here's a stunner right here. Alan and his ex-wife, Danella used to babysit Michael, who's my son that just turned Alan. If you don't know this 37 years old, Oh, God. In February, thirty-seven. So he was in no way, diapers. No way. No way. No way. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it was literally like Alan and Don, the place we lived in. It was like a duplex, but a really big, big on both sides. Big. It was all awesome. brand new built. But he could. Alan could reach out where the playpen was. He could open his window on his side. And I could have my window cracked, and he could reach over and shake the playpen and wake Michael up, who would start screaming. And, you know, well, naturally, I'd be like, oh. Other, <laughs> we could pass each other a styrofoam cup. <laughs> well, those were always full in those days. The styrofoam yes, That was for sure. The styrofoam cup tour. Um, let, let's quickly talk about Desmond Child. Uh, Alan, you are a songwriter. You have seen what Desmond has done it is sort of music for the masses. Is that a writer that you respect? Is that is that somebody that you look up to and say, man, that guy knows how to, to make a hit? Talk to me a little bit about Desmond. Well, I, I would have to say that when I, when I look to um, guides, to people who I, I had no ability to emulate but wish to, I'd start with John Lennon, um, Dylan, Bob, and uh, um, Don Henley. I mean, the, the, those those are the kind of writers that I thought were exemplary. Um, but, you know, Bobby and I had a weakness for Lennon and McCartney, and we had a weakness for Elton John. I hope I'm not blowing something here. But uh, I used to have this jukebox in, in this building outside in my yard, and the styrofoam cups would be walked through to this building and we'd run that jukebox loud all night and play pool. And oh, yeah. Bobby is, Bobby can sing a song when he wants to, let me tell you. I mean, you know, he would howl at the moon. <laughs> That's great. We, we had a tendency to step late. That's, I mean, putting it mildly, like late in the next <laughs> afternoon. So, yeah. We were young, we were young and had the energy and, and love for music that we would not just play our favorite artists and not notwithstanding his jukebox being full of stones and great posters all over this game room he had. We've been I had a studio at my house. We were it was all about music. I mean that's that's basically yep. all it was. It was, it was I mean it was that's, a great day. You know, think about it for a moment. Listen to Bobby, know where he comes from, listen to me. Um be aware that I came from a tiny little village in England and we ended up being, you know, obviously so far lifelong friends. Um, music brought us together. Yeah, it really does. In fact, it, it brings, it brings everybody together. That's why I'm here. Um, Alan, I, I, let me ask you this on, on the whole rat front. You've seen what has gone on over the last 10, 20 years. As somebody who oh, yeah. was there in the beginning, is that something where where you sort of say, like the title of the song, shame, shame, shame? Like, why couldn't you guys just sort of somehow figure it out? How do you look at it? And what, what advice would you offer? Or, or what would you say, even from a managerial position? Don't be the manager and 
give Bobby a gun, you know, it's like, <laughs> go and shoot him. <laughs> Um, no, it, it, it is really sad when the spirit of a band and the progress of a band is completely and utterly derailed by infighting. And it's like, there's enough for everybody. Let's all just, can't we all just get along? You know, because it's really sad because fans don't give a shit about who's sending a, you know, an injunction to somebody or somebody has to be deposed. What they want is the band to go on stage and do round and round. And by the way, it's the lawyers who keep going round and round with all their stuff. It's like get them out of the picture, be a band. Yeah, get really like get get the uh, <clears throat> get the remaining guys in the in the band together in a room and forget the fucking lawyers. But okay, let let me ask you about this since you were neighbors. Um, Let's remember Robin Crosby for a second. Did he come over a lot, Alan? Did you have a chance to see him? And, and what was sort of your perspectives on him as a player? Because you know players. You know Slash. You know Kendall. You know how, and Chris Buck. You know how to pick out a good guitar player. What was your sort of impressions of Robin? I really liked him as a person. Um, I, he was really tall and affable, really good-looking guy. Um, you know, a very, very pleasant human being to hang out with. And yeah, he used to come around because, you know, he wanted to hang out with Don and see if Don had any riffs that he'd forgotten about. Um, so, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd come home and uh, it was quite common to find Robin standing in the huge panorama <laughs> window of the, of the building, you know, with a little amp and a guitar, just playing some riffs and so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, you know, not not particularly close with him, um, but we were in the same social circumstance. But that said, you know, miss him. Yeah, yeah, right, right, Bob. Um, Bob, let me ask you quickly about working with with Desmond Child. He comes into the detonator sessions. Did the band come in with these songs all done in, in one way or another? And he sort of did this song doctor thing and just sort of made them Absolutely. better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so, I, I definitely. I, I worked on in, on two of my songs that uh, I had written for that record and uh, Detonator, and uh, he's he is extraordinarily he's a craftsman for melodies. And when people ask me for advice, ever since I did work with him, you know about how to get point A to point Z or whatever, it would be learn how to play piano and write on piano because there's so much more room for melodies to come up with as you're playing pianos. I'm a guitarist. That's how I write. But watching him on the piano was incredible because I never really wrote with somebody, a keyboard player or a pianist or whatever. He would come up with melodies just like you would just, you know, anything, come up with an everyday word. It was incredible. It was was an unbelievable sight to see him so fast come up with cool shit, you know? Nice. And like we had a song called giving yourself away. that was, was written with Diane Warren, Desmond and Stephen Piercy. Although Stephen's positions in writing with him, his contributions were, yeah, yeah, that that's cool. I like that. <laughs> so, and that's an honest to God perspective, man. I was there. I saw it's like, really, you're actually getting your name on the song for that's cool. That works. 
That's, is that how we write? I mean, Stephen would have rewritten Strawberry Fields forever if he could, just to get his name on it. So, but those people were the real deal. That's for certain. You know, it was also good to watch Alan and Great White and those guys write. Alan was came up with parts real quick too. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, okay, well, so, so tell me about that. When did you have a chance to see Alan writing? Were, were you ever at the, the Great White recording sessions, or was it two so many, so many times. It was like five minutes from all of our cribs, you know, the, all of us that lived in the South Bay. So, of course, you know, they were, they'd lock out for six months there. You know, it could be like, okay, the bars are closed, but the studio's not, so let's head there. You know, here's me knocking on the door, me, along with 10 others hidden behind me on the other side of the building. And then we would just barge in and proceed to keep on <laughs> Or, you know, just popping in the middle of the night, whatever. It's just, uh, I mean, when we wouldn't interrupt their session. We would just, you know, watch. Yeah, so I had a chance to watch them record a lot. And we were all tight friends. And still, you know, to this day, I mean, I don't see those guys that much anymore. I did when we were out on the road doing festival gigs together. We more like a hand in passing because that's the way everybody does it now. You know, it's not the gang mentality as it was in the 80s and not, or whatever. I won't say the 90s because we all know what happened in the early 90s. Everybody was forced to quit music because, you know, of the Seattle situation. Um, but then it came back around. All things, you know, come back around. As, and now everybody's back to work, which is great. Which is great. And it's funny you know? because during, during the Desmond interview, I asked him a question and he said, do you mean pre-Nirvana or post-Nirvana? And I went, oh, okay, no, I mean post-Nirvana. And, and he goes, okay, well, that changes the answer. So, yeah, that, that seems to be that delineation mark where everybody, everything changed. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if I if you answered or or if I missed it, but you did have back surgery a while back. Um, how is that? Twice. Yeah, twice. a couple times. How is that doing now? Can, can you sit up straight? Can you actually get behind a kit if you wanted to? I can. Yeah, I can. I mean... What was that, Alan? I haven't. I said it depends how. Can he sit up straight? Depends how much he's drunk. <laughs> it depends on the <laughs> depends well, on the styrofoam cups. <laughs> like, let me tell you something. Like, I know how to have a good time. That's never changed. However, you know, I in the week, you know, I'm in bed at nine, man. You know, I don't go to sleep till about one. But oh, you know, that I start you wrapping things up, honey. Well, I do in that, yeah, I'm, I'm actually going through a divorce with my uh, number two wife. My first wife, Jenny, and I were sixth grade girlfriends and lasted 30 years, you know, and then took 20 years, uh, took about 24 years. And I got married to this girl, Michelle, and sadly didn't, didn't last the test of time. A lot had to do with this uh, lawsuit, in my opinion, and having heard it, having to hear it for 40, it's in its fourth year right now. And having to hear it nightly and daily, it just didn't, you know, it's wearing. It's definitely wearing. Yeah. And it's hard not to, to express that. And you got to unload what's in your stomach, your gut, and your brain when you're going through this. And it's going to beat up on any marriage, you know. So that, you know, she's, uh, her and I are going to be legally divorced probably in about three or four months, something like that. But I'm in love with the new lady. And I won't discuss her, you know, situation here. here. Right. And she's got a couple children I'm crazy about too, and uh, nice. we're just having a good time, you know. Yeah, nice. It, it, it really is. I'm glad to hear that. It, it's good to I be. I don't involved. know if I'm going to play it. 
It is. I mean, um, I've always had somebody there, but you know, I, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I'm going to, you know, I'm really starting to think, you know, I mean, I, I don't have to go back out and work to, to survive and live. Thank God, you know, but, um, you know, I, every night I have dreams of being on the road. I call them rat mares, frankly, you know, it's the same, same shite every night, dude. It's like, you know, I'm trying to get to the stage or, you know, we're lost on the tour bus and my drumsticks are linguini and I can't, the cymbals are falling over on my, it's a nut, it's rat mares. That's, that's the best way to put it. You know, but I'm dying to play. It feels good to sit in with bands and play and, um, you know, I've been doing it since I was 14, so I just hit 60 last October. So I put in my gold watch garnering time. I don't know, you know, depends on what makes itself available to me. Or, you know, do I want to start a new band and go through that whole rigmarole? I don't know. I just I'm, haven't decided yet, you know. Well, I was actually going to ask you that because you did mention Carrie Kelly and, and, and Robbie. If you did do something with them, just for, for pure argument's sake, would it be a set of rat songs or would it be a new project? And you have, you know, round and round as the encore. Like, what would you see your vision being? Like, <clears throat> your own sort of rat music thing or new music and a couple of the greatest hits kind of thing? I, You know, I don't know. We're just, we're just getting ready to have a conversation about that. Something me and Carrie individually talked about and then of course bringing crane into the thing as it's more you know a side project for everybody those guys you know out with uh their bands and you know they always keep busy and i've just hidden from this thing this whole thing's affected me so negatively you know over the years up 16 was the last tour i did so i've been off 17 18 now this summer if i don't get out there you know it's three years not a long time, but it feels like 13 years and I'm itching to play, but I'm not itching uh, to be away from my house. I mean, I have a great house and property that's kind of like parts of the Caribbean. So it's badass at night, day. I love my woman. I love, I just, my dogs, I don't know. I, I can't figure out what I'm doing yet. It might, might just stay I home here. Know. I'll throw this out here, and then we'll get over to Desmond. Uh, on uh, March 23rd, 1984, so 35 years ago, Out of the Cellar came out. Just, uh, and I'll ask Alan as well. Um, Alan, in fact, I'll start with Alan. Alan, as the competition, as the guy with Great White and eventually Guns N' Roses, you see this album come out. Was that a game changer for you? Did it wake up? Did, did it open your eyes and go, oh, shit, okay, we got to be this good? What was your impression of Out, uh, out of the Cellar? Um, my impression was uh, that they'd made a really good record. Um, and in terms of um, <clears throat> did it change my outlook? No, we were all going in, a, in our own directions, which were the same direction. And looking to get signed, looking to make a good record, looking to get on the road. Um, there was the sense of, you know, Rat getting signed was encouraging. Rat getting getting a record out was encouraging. Um, Rat getting a hit before we did was fucking annoying as hell. And we <laughs> yeah, well, uh, <laughs> sorry, man. I was wondering when you were going to get to that part. <laughs> yeah, and Kendall and I would sit on the beach 
We're sitting on the beach in Southern California, drinking beer, watching the bikinis go by, and all we can do is moan that rats out on the road and they've got a hit, and we don't. Um, you know, so <clears throat> there it was. Well, don't forget, don't leave out of the equation that uh, Don was in the same position we all yeah. were. We were all striving yeah. to get to the finish line. We didn't mind all of us getting there, but we wanted to be there first, every one of us. Well, you and, do re- I mean, Bobby, you do realize that that little that little group of people, and it, fundamentally, it was a small group of people of us in the South Bay. Um, you can make a case for going back and saying that was the last great rock and roll scene that rolled through L.A., and we were lucky to be a part of it. Uh, I, I see. I totally agree with that. I mean, when you when Alan told me he was managing. Uh, now, including, uh, you know, a lo- alongside of Great White, Guns N' Roses, I-, I was like, who and what? You imagine what? <laughs> Just like when yeah, Poison yeah. came out on tour with us, I never heard of them, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't, Guns N' Roses, I mean, I-, I didn't know who they were from Adam, and all of a sudden, you know, in- within a few months, yeah, but, Alan yeah, but- cru- cruising up in a brand new Jaguar in front of my house and building a house a couple blocks away from me, I'm like, Oh, things are good, huh? <laughs> well, I, I, I do remember that when you did a little bit of investigation on Guns N' Roses, you came over one night, probably with a couple of styrofoam cups, and told me I was Uh-oh. completely insane for doing it. I remember that so clearly. You said, you're getting into, you've no idea what you're getting into. And you were right. Well, it I think out. maybe you're talking about, not talking about like that they weren't a good musical uh you know, uh, get you know product. That's not really what I think what he's leading up. But yeah, well, you know, the, the winds have a way of you know telling a tale, and you get that into your ear, and you're like, mm, okay. Yeah, I'm just amazed to think sitting here in in Montreal of this little neighborhood that had the rat guys, the the the, the great white guy, the the Dawkins. I mean, in that little apartment block. Motley. The Motley's, that apartment blog, that little neighborhood, you, you've probably sold over 115 million copies combined with, with all the bands. I mean, can you imagine <clears> that, <throat> that, 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 that yeah. this little apartment block would have such oh, international oh. And, and lasting success? Oh, and by the way, Michael Wagner would be staying every now and then, living on a diet of macaroni and cheese because that's all he could afford. And you think about how many records Michael Wagner was connected to. I mean, it's just so. So you. Yeah, we we knew him. I knew Michael, and so did Alan. Like before, I was even in Rat. You know, mm-hmm. this goes way back. And uh, this is when I played on Dawkins, the first Dawkins record, as a demo when Don came over to to Cologne, Germany, where Dieter Dürich, the producer of Scorpions, his studio was in a little village called Stumlin, asked him Stumbling. to just pay a favor back. It was when we were there, but we cut we we cut the uh, the demo there with Michael Wagner engineering in in Dieter's studio, and then Don went off to Hamburg and came back with a briefcase full of money and a record deal, and he was sharing my room. Semi, and this is well known and documented in my book. Don documented in my book, and um, 
you know, the rest is history. I mean, it's it's just amazing. Like, amazing. like, like, like the friends in that neighborhood have have had a hand in, uh, you know, about two hundred million album sales. It's unbelievable. But just real quick for you, there, what what was this like the thirty fifth anniversary of uh, the album for you? Because uh, I mean, you had one and man round and round. Did, did you feel you had made a great record, or were you like, oh man, yeah. I just, I just, okay. Any no, great I knew, memories? I knew it. And frankly, I, I, my memory is that we left on tour the middle of February and that that record was out then because I had a lot of people texting me and saying, Hey, congratulations, you know, 35 year anniversary, you know, just a few days ago. And I'm like, wait a minute, nothing came out in February. I remember being on tour in February, but I'm generally not wrong. I have a pretty good memory, but no, I knew the record was great. Yeah. You know, and, and I wanted to touch on something before I forget you were talking about the Motley thing. Cause I watched that movie, me and my gal the other night <clears throat> and it's, you know, it's so all the timelines and things are so incorrect on that. It's incredible. Uh, I don't know why they let they let that come out like that. It's just so off. Because I was right there in the midst of all of it. As a matter of fact, I picked Tommy up the night he met Heather. I picked him up in my Porsche. We went to the forum to see Ario Speedwagon play, and we were at the bar hanging out. And then I looked over and at the doorway entrance of the Forum Club, Alan, right? We were right. over at the bar. And I see Heather and Scott Bale walk in. So I, I said, T-Bone, check this out. See that, see that chick over there? Do you know who that is? It's Heather Locklear with Scott Bale. So fuck, dude, we have the same dentist. I'm going to go say hi. I'm like <laughs> grabbing him by the shirt and going, don't go over there. You're way too loaded. You end up getting in a fight with Scott Bale. I'm telling you, don't. So, you know, he ended up, of course, meeting and marrying her. She was such a great person. I mean, I loved her. And uh, I was telling her, you're blowing it, dude. Why are you, you have the best chick and you're blowing it. And so I'm sure to a degree he does have resentment about that going down. But the way that's portrayed on that show, that's not how it happened. They have this at this supposedly Vince Neal's party in his house where he lived when Razzle sadly died on the Esplanade at Redondo Beach. Well, that was an apartment Vince lived in, not a house, number one. Yep. And <clears throat> Tommy didn't meet Heather there, and the timeline was off. And, um, you know, they didn't even mention Pam, uh, Pamela Anderson in that show. And I'm like, well, hey, where's the Pamela Anderson thing? So it was Bobby, all things that were off. Bobby, it's mythological propaganda. I mean, you know, if you remember, I signed the band to Greenworld and then moved them on to Electra. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. Of what I actually know from my personal observation, they didn't get that right either. No, they didn't. They didn't mention Greenworld at all. We and we were signed to Greenworld, if yep. you recall. What and that, yep. you know, Marshall Burrow then Time Coast. We signed it to Time Coast, you know. Yeah. And then to Atlantic, of course, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, l- listen. But Greenberg was a distribution company. Four time yep. houses really held that word. Yep, exactly. I mean, it really, it really was sort of the the Disney represent, representation of of the Motley store. Now, having said that, folks asked me online which one I would like to see as the next bio uh, biopic, and I actually would vote for Rat because I think the the entire thing of having, you know, Bon Jovi open and Poison open and all this and the success and, and then Arcade and then all the lawsuits. And I really think it would make for a compelling story. And I really think that that you guys could, could tell <clears throat> could tell it real and tell it straight and not have this sort of, you know, fuzzy, Incorrect. Yeah, Incorrect. 
fuzzy yeah, time. Listen, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. And I hate, I apologize for cutting you off. But yeah. the, the difference is there's one word. It's called reasonable. That's one thing that isn't in the rap vocabulary because ah. nobody is reasonable in this band, you know? Although we wrote so many great songs and had so many great tours. And I mean, we had Great White and Warrant out on their biggest records, you know, in 1989. And Alan remembers that quite well, as I oh, do. I it was a very well, fun I, tour. I tell, you, I tell you what I remember about that, darling, is you and I sitting in front of some tapes that were running, having a beer or two, and we're looking at the tapes and going, shall we turn them off or shall we let them go on? <laughs> I'll stay out of that. I'll stay out of that part. <laughs> wasn't during the rat set, I might say that. No, but, it wasn't during the rat set, and it wasn't during the gray-white set. So who who were you turning oh, off? Whose tapes were you turning off? Nobody's. <laughs> yes, nice day today. How are you all doing? Right, but listen, <laughs> the, the fact that people use tape is 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 pretty wide. No, okay, in fact, let me ask you this as a fan. Was the use of tape as prevalent back in the 80s as it is? I mean, now it's it's 90% of the bands. Everything's on a grid. The lights are timed perfectly to the, the beat of the... the, yeah. the, the uh, Let me answer that. Yeah. Let me answer that. Rat were a genuine live band, and Bobby Blotzer was a monster drummer, and if we needed someone to sit in because we had a problem in Phoenix, first call, Bobby. What was the problem in Phoenix? Was that uh, Great White or, or Guns? Yeah, no, Grey White. I can't, well, I can't remember exactly why, but, you know. That's it was favorite. actually just a, just to straighten that out. It, I was out in Phoenix on a social visit with you um, which you, and what you're thinking about. But when Adi's shoulder problems happened, I, right. in South Carolina, I flew down to South in the South Carolina. And I knew their whole set, so it was a no-brainer. I went to Soundcheck. We played like six songs, and they're like, "Do you need to play anything more?" I'm like, "No, do you?" No, <laughs> so we did I it. I went out in the show and played the show, and it, it was amazing how quickly Adi's arm got better because <laughs> he came to the gig and was like, "Uh oh, what's going yeah, on up listen, there?" You know? Listen, a drummer's job is to drive a band, and I am hard put to come up with many names where I'd go before Bobby in terms of the ability to drive a band. Bobby, I loved the way he played. It was right at the front of the beat. It pushed. He pushed the guitar players in the right way. Bobby is a monster rock and roll drummer. Yeah. I thank you for that, sir. I, I agree. Um, you know, everybody... I, I want to be back out there. I do. That's I feel like I have Bobby. an obligation to, to for you to say something that kind... And, you know, I've had other no, people no, that no, are trying no, to motivate, no, 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 motivate no, 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 no. me to go out there and it makes me want to go. Like, what am I Darling, doing? I have a duty to be out there doing this. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's you know? not kind and it's not flattery. It is mere observation. That's what I always saw and that's what I always heard. One of the best people ever to drive a rock and roll band. I agree. Well, it's definitely better than it's definitely better than you suck and you should stay home. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not that. And, and listen, staying home's good. Listen, the the the, the entire rap band. I'm not sure, no. 
the the entire rap band had a you know you, you look at you you can't take bobby out of rat and still have rat worn i mean the the, the guitaring and and it it was a perfectly technical great band and and I agree. I mean, you, you, you listen to the start of Wanted Man or any of that, and, and you have to have Bobby's sound. It, it's just, it is what it is, and it's perfect. And feel. And, and feel. feel. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. here's the thing that you're never going to get out of any drummer they've had, and I'm not talking any crap on their drummers, but unless you grew up learning to be a drummer and a percussionist by listening to, to, to Motown music, and listening to Beatles and Stones and emulating that and the swing that those bands, there's a certain swing that you're never going to have if you don't have Motown pouring through your blood. That's just my own feeling on my playing. So when I hear somebody Amen. that's out there playing my stuff, they're like, it's like, come on, dude. Hey, Wonder Bread, you know, can you just like darken that toast a little bit here? Get a little swing on that? What's up? <laughs> Well, it does require this swing, and and I'll say the same thing for your band, Alan, uh, um, Guns N' Roses. Steven Adler had a swing that you can't replace. After that, it became very mechanical, and you need oh, that. two-dimensional. Yeah. The drummers after him have had hands of concrete. Bobby, believe it or not, played with power, but he had very, very deft hands as well, and that's what made him special. And you're right about Steven, not necessarily the most technically efficient drummer I've ever heard in my life but he had swing and he had an enthusiasm an ebullience and a love of being in that band and on that stage that no one's been able to replicate no I agree I agree so um, we have been uh, at this for 40 minutes shall we get over to Desmond Child is there anything else that we need to uh, to cover uh, because on my end it has been yes what, what, what do you mean Desmond, Desmond Child you got me and Bobby what more do you want listen Bobby I know what is that? who is this Desmond Child person yeah who's this Desmond Child person um, <laughs> he's, he's part two Bobby, today it's far, it, Bobby it's been far too long get my number off, off Mitch let's hook up soon yeah I have it in my cellmate you know and uh cool. Call me. Um, yeah. We'll do. I love you, brother. I love both you guys. You guys are good friends and, you know, good allies and just uh, good for the good for the music business. You know, you're pro, especially you, Mitch. I mean, you're out there. Always good vibes. Always positive. Means a lot. You know, means a lot to me. And I thank you for that. Yeah. Love, love you, too. Let's get over to some love songs from Desmond. Yes, let's get over it. Let's go listen to what Desmond had to say. It's a great interview. It lasts about an hour. We cover all kinds of bands. And uh, there you go. And, and, and uh, yeah, well, we talked Bon Jovi and we finished with, uh, with Rat Hatting. Went out with Bon Jovi. I guess it was 85, so uh, 34 years ago since that tour. Holy mackerel. Thank and you, gentlemen. You know what's funny is they will ne they'll never admit that. John will always skirt. He'll name every other band that he opened for, but will never – Talk about rat, even though they were out with us for eleven months straight. So, I don't you know, know why, well, I'll tell you this about John Bon Jovi. Somewhere around the Crush album, two thousand, two thousand one. Uh, I guess that was when I was writing for Brave Words and Bloody Knuckle, which was a heavy metal magazine, and I and I talked to the publicist about doing an interview, and they said, "Oh God, no." Uh, he doesn't want to be associated with the heavy metal world. They will never do an interview with that magazine because it, it it's all about People magazine and CNN. And 
Uh, it's just like, why? Hmm. Why can't you say that you were on a stage with Brett Michaels? Why can't you say you were on a stage with Bobby? Like, what is the embarrassment in that? It's it's bizarre, but, you know, whatever. You know, say la vie. Say la vie. Well, just for the record, he might have $500 million in the bank, but we paid them 7500 a night. And when he kept coming up on our production, he would lose a bottle of vodka out of the dressing room every night. So... <laughs> That was always kind of funny to talk about in retrospect. So, yeah. and wasn't my doing, I want to say, but we did it. And then that, that would end up in the styrofoam cups here. Let me just quickly introduce uh, Desmond Child, and uh, here we go. Hi, here, Desmond. Without further ado, here is the one, the only, Desmond Child. We are speaking with a songwriter-producer, Desmond Child. Desmond, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And just real quick before you say hello, Thank you, by the way, for all these songs and all this music. It has been an absolute uh, soundtrack to my life and uh, pretty much everybody's life who's going to be listening to this today. Oh, well, you know, I don't know how to do anything else. But it, it is amazing. So let me let me sort of start at the beginning, because the, the list of songs that you've written and the artist is incredible. And we we will get to that. But. Where does this come from uh, in terms of getting into songwriting and making it a profession? You know, are you sort of sitting in the back of the class at 12 years old, doodling in your notebook, and at some point you go, hey, I've, I've got these tunes going on, I've got, or do you sort of get into Desmond Child and Rouge and somebody says, well, it's great that you have a band, but now you got to write some songs. Was it inspiration or perspiration to, to get to this point? My mother was a songwriter. And she was Cuban, so she wrote a style of music called Bolero. And I grew up at her feet. And, you know, she was always writing a song. So um, I didn't know that people didn't write songs. So sensing her mood being happy, I could hear that the music was kind of joyful. And and when it, when she was sad, which was most of the time, they were sad, melancholy songs. And as soon as I could stand up and say something i would be just standing there you know right you know kind of holding myself up on the on the piano bench and just looking up at her and then she would be trying to write something and then i'd make suggestions so that's where it started <laughs> so all right so talk to me about uh, about that then you know, so your mom was doing it, but did she actually give you lessons and 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 have you write stuff out and and correct it like a school teacher, or was it just really like you said she was writing stuff and you'd say, hey mom, by the way, if you if you use this word, it would sound better. Well, my my mother played piano and guitar by ear, and um, you know she was a poet and her lyrics were incredible, and and her you know, poetry is, is, is stunning. And so she was a true artist. So it wasn't quite like that. And, you know, I, I grew up in a family where everybody did something. I had other aunts that wrote songs and my uncles, um, one was a percussionist at the Tropicana nightclub in, in Havana, Cuba. And my other uncle started a singing group, sort of like the Latin Four Seasons called Los Bucaneros, and he danced and he sang, and they sang in four-part harmony. And so this was going on in the 1950s. And so I was born in Gainesville, Florida on a dairy ranch, but we always were going into 
Havana, and you know there was always music going on, so it wasn't like a formal kind of thing. And then you know, after the Cuban Revolution, my family fell on hard times, and I lived in those same projects. They shot the movie Moonlight, and my mom would always on the weekends she'd always have all of her poet and songwriter friends, and they'd be singing songs that later became classics you know, in the 60s. And she started the first organization of of uh, songwriters, uh, of Cuban songwriters in exile. And so, you know, she was always an activist for, for songwriters' rights. So <laughs> I sort of have, you know, completely followed in her footsteps. When she passed away in 2012, I co-founded the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame with Rudy Perez, and Rudy is one of the greatest, you know, song, Latin songwriters and producers. And we're on our seventh year. And that kind of came out of, uh, you know, after I was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, I realized I was only the third uh, person of Hispanic heritage to ever be inducted. It was Joe Beam and Ernesto Lacuona and me. <laughs> and so I just felt an imperative that you know there are thousands of incredible songwriters of every latin country and portugal and brazil and you know of so many genres and and you know the music of latin america goes back even further than americas i mean the missionaries were writing songs and poems when they got there in the four, you know 400 years ago on yeah. the, on the little sides of the of 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 their bibles so, you know, I've I've been very much involved in, you know, in promoting songwriters' rights. I'm on the board of ASCAP and um, you know, I you know, you know, never stop creating. It just never stops and I never stop fighting for songwriters. Well, in fact, okay, I was going to ask you some other stuff, but let, let's take that up right now. Um uh, Apple and Spotify are, are sort of exchanging jabs at each other. You see artists like Peter Frampton and others post about, hey, I have you know X million amount of spins. Here's my seventeen ninety nine. Is that is that the similar circumstance for songwriters? Do do streams and, and views on YouTube and all that add up to a similar revenue stream as in the past, as in the eighties and nineties and so on? Or are you also in this sort of new frontier where you go, hey, wait a minute, you know, Living on a Prayer got four million spins last month, and and I'm I got forty bucks to show for it. I mean, what's it like well, currently? Let's just start with Living on a Prayer. Last right. year, it received half a billion streams between Pandora and Spotify. That's not counting title or any any other kind of way that people are downloading the song, and. Um, my take-home pay was six thousand dollars for half a billion. For so half a billion. Think, yeah. So I don't think that that's right. And I think that now that we have the Music Modernization Act in place, it's supposed to lift our royalties by forty-four percent, which means instead of six thousand, I'll be getting ten thousand for half a billion streams. Yay! I don't. I don't think that gets my kids through, you know, college. It, it doesn't. Okay, so let me ask you this: because I'm in Canada, I'm in Montreal, and we we've always sort of suggested that 
the uh, camera, the Canadian music rights uh, was fairer and our way was fairer and Europeans. So is that the proper perception? Is this a specifically United States issue? Is this a global issue or are there some markets like Europe or like Canada or, or Japan where they treat you better? Or are you sort of like, eh, I'm getting $6,000 no matter where I go? No, that's that's my global uh, take-home pay. Okay. You know? Wow. So, hello. <laughs> so, the the thing is, is, you know, on the internet and all, I mean, it is global. I mean, people are downloading and streaming all over the world simultaneously. The, the You know, it doesn't quite work like that. I mean, there are other or income streams that are, you know, people that, you know, in certain territories, like the, the producer, the song, the, um, the singers, the musicians, uh, you know, people, people that worked on the record, they actually getting a little tiny piece of something. And we don't have that here in this, in, in, in the United States yet. Um, you know, because, you know, there was strong lobbying, you know, from, you know, I guess, you know, different uh, forces. They didn't want to have to pay more for the music by having to include all these other people. So we don't get paid from them and we don't pay them. I mean, but you can imagine the imbalance. American music is, is so much more played all over the world than any other kind of music. So the imbalance is like, we're not getting what, you know, what was coming to us. And, you know, now we're at a place where maybe there's a little, it's a start. It's great. It's a start. Uh, but it's, it's so far from, from what it is. I mean, the audio um, owners, the people that own the recordings, they, they, they make like 15 times more than we do. And it's still not even good enough, even for them. You know what I'm saying? And they make 15 times more. Because, you know, somehow in the shuffle of the dice, the songwriters and the publishers got the, you know, short end of the stick. And we need to try to rectify that. If you go to license a song for a film or anything like that, or commercial, it's 50-50. Why shouldn't that 50-50 expression go, you know, all the way around every which way you, you play a song? Yeah, no, I agree about and that. And I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for organizations right. I'm a part of. I'm I'm wearing the Desmond Child hat, not the ASCAP hat or any other kind of hat. You know, I'm just saying, you know, from me. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because the the artist always it's always sort of good to be the songwriter in a band. That that seems to be the best place to go. Now, um, let me quickly get into a little bit of song. Actually, you know what? No, let me get over to the story of Roman and Nero. Uh, to the story of Roman and Nero, which came out. Uh, 2013. Um, it is the story of your family and the surrogate and your two children. It is a an incredibly loving story. Talk to me about the the desire to put that out and let people have that private look into your life because you could certainly just be Desmond and be the family and and and, and live happily ever after. Why was it important for you and the family to say, hey, this this is our story and it's important for you to understand it, you know, uh, Joe Q public public. Well, and it's a great story, by the way. I think that we were kind of mavericks in a way, be, uh, as, as far as, um, 
being two gay men wanting to have our own biological children, there are very few um, couples that had tried, you know, in vitro fertilization. It was just at the very beginning. I think we were like the 60th couple that uh, were born through, you know, the the uh, doctor that we that that we used. Or no, actually, through growing generations, we were the 60th couple that came to them for help because there was a lot involved, legal help, um, and in terms of, you know, dealing with our surrogate mom in a fair way and making sure that she was taken care of and, you know, and that it was all, you know, completely above board. Um, the, the thing was that, you know, my husband and I, we, right now, we're, we're celebrating our 30th year together. But, you know, after we'd built like five different houses and had like many generations of bulldogs, we decided we wanted to start a family of our own. And I was I was in my late 40s at the time. My husband was, you know, in his early late 30s. And um, we we just did the, the research, but we didn't even know where to begin. So we went to a special meditation conference in India with Deepak Chopra. And there we met Angela Whitaker and her mom, Ruby, who, who were there um, from the United States. And you know, there was something that we were just drawn to her and her mom. And we sat together and we meditated together. We took the bus together. We flew on the planes together. We did everything together. And I'm just like, looking at this woman, she's so full of life and, and exuded such a beautiful energy. And I'm looking at her and I said, you know, and she said, why are you looking at me like that? I said, because you're going to have my kid. And she was like, Ooh, get away. No, what are you talking about? (laughs) And, um, you know, later on when we got back to the States, she asked to see me because she was actually from Nashville. And, um, you know, we met, for breakfast. And she said, you know what? I, I wanted to tell you this. After you said that, I went back to my room and I had a very intense dream that I had your child. And, um, she wasn't expecting to, <laughs> and she says, that's why I think I'm meant to do this. And, and Deepak Chopra says, you know, it is almost biblical, you know, as <laughs> like, you know, having this dream and, um, and so it was a fantastic journey. We, they, they are 9-11 babies because um, they were conceived on September 7th, 2001. And um, we, we found out like the 13th or 14th that she was going to have twins. And uh, then later on, we found out they were going to be boys. And so, you know, it, we, we documented every step along the way. And so did she with her, with her cell phone, because we felt it was important that we show people in the world that first of all, that gay people are not, um, infertile. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? My own father thought I was infertile because he thought I didn't have enough testosterone to have, uh, uh, fertile sperm, Right. He was he was Hungarian, very old school. But you have babies, you know. It's like, yes, <laughs> and um, you know. I think there's a lot of ignorance out there about. And he was a smart man. He really thought that that uh, gay men were like eunuchs or something in the castle. 
And so we showed the world how to, how we did it. And of course, you know, there are many ways to make a family, you know, adopting and, and you know, there's, you know, artificial insemination in vitro, you know, or, you know, putting families together from different, you know, kind of unions and things like that. But um, we have gotten so many letters after our documentary came out of people that showed their the film to their their families because they didn't even know how to tell them that they were even gay. I mean, some people just said, I want you to see this and played our film and then said, well, I'm gay. <laughs> because it showed that we also can have, you know, families and full of love and that our children, you know, have souls and that they're just like every other child that's ever, ever born. And our children are lucky because they have two loving parents that, you know, have given up everything for them. And that's not always the case out there. So many children are left unadopted and then thrown out into the street, you know, and that's very upsetting. So I hope those people that are out there that are pro-life because, you know, we are pro-life, you know, of our, our, our children, um, that they go out there and, and adopt and, and, um, take, you know, participate. Otherwise, you know, get out of people's lives of how, you know, they, they have or decide not to have children. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very big issue, but, uh, we, we, (laughs) You know, we we are so happy. Our 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 sons are now uh, visiting colleges, so it's kind of you know painful to to go to all these incredible colleges and think, oh, my sons are going to be leaving together because they're twins all at the same time. We're going to be empty nesting very hard in about another year. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, with $6,000 coming in, you'll have to get sort of a state college, I would think. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. But but okay, let me, before we move on to the songwriting and the different songs here, before the film actually came out and as you were putting it together, was there any fear that there was going to be some kind of backlash or that some artist wouldn't work with you? Or, 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 is, that, or is that so old school thinking that, no, nobody's going to care. We're going to make a loving movie and people are going to... Was there any reticence or was it like, nah, listen, it's, it's, we're in the 2000s. Nobody cares. Let's, let's just get it out and, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, we, we never got hate mail. We never okay. got... Nor should we you. We never got anything and, and uh, you know... It, people that you know were that were dragged there that was you know very conservative left you know teary-eyed and and so many people you know like we we joined you know the travel soccer and all that and most of the parents that were in that they were all republicans and all that they got to know us and we're on the sidelines cheering and screaming for our, our kids and so many of them came up to me and they said, you know what? I'd never met a gay person before and you've changed my heart and you've changed my mind. So very, very positive. Uh, yeah. And I, I, is it by the way on a streaming service? Cause I, I, I watched sort of clips it's here on, and yeah. it's on Amazon and iTunes. Oh, and if you go good. to um, our website, which is to the documentary.com, you can see a little trailer and stuff, and we also, um, 
you know, when we, our film came out the night before we actually got married in Central Park and our sons were the best men. So we made a special little side movie about our wedding, which is fun. That, that's great. In fact, um, Steve Thompson, the great producer, was telling me this, this afternoon that you had attended his wedding and he wanted to wish you well. Um, real quick here, uh, songwriting. I was talking to Jim Valance the other day and sort of asking him what his sort of secret sauce was for putting together a song. And he said, you have to have a title first and work from there. And then I read a story about you in Rolling Stone and they sort of said, what's your trick? And it says, you have to have a title first and work from there. Um, talk to me about that. Cause it seems that some of the, 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 the two greatest songwriters or two exceptionally great songwriters have this same trick. Is that sort of the genesis of every song? It's okay. First we come up with living on a prayer and then we come up to how to get a narrative to fit it. Talk to me about sort of the, the start of writing a song. Well, I worked for two years with one of the most brilliant songwriters of all time, Bob Crew, who wrote and produced songs with the Four Seasons and many other, you know, he has many other hits like Lady Marmalade and, you know, you know, Mitch Ryder, Detroit Wheels, you know, all these things that he did. I mean, his first hit was when he was 18, Silhouettes on the Shade. And that was like 1948 or something. I don't know what it was, but it was back in the day. And so uh, by the time he met me, he was already kind of retired from music and he was painting and sculpting, but he decided to take me under his wing because I'm a Scorpio. And, you know, uh, you know, Bob Gaudio, his, his co-writer on the Four Seasons was also a Scorpio. And also Kenny Nolan, who wrote Lady Marmalade, he's a Scorpio. He would only work with Scorpios. And so that was my passage in. And for two years, I would meet him in a little uh, French cafe called Le Coco Van that was across the street from this kind of modern building where he had rented just a studio apartment. It had one room and a kitchen and a bathroom. That was it. No bedrooms, nothing. And, you know, that's where he would write. He had his own apartment separate that had gorgeous artwork and all of that. But this this room had nothing on the walls, had like a beige carpet, black piano, hard black bench, a stool with arms that, you know, a comfortable stool with arms for him and a stack of empty, you know, yellow pads. And then he would go in the kitchen and he would be sharpening the pencils and we'd sit there. And for two years, you know, we'd meet at Coco Van noon and then by one we would be upstairs sitting ready to write a song by six o'clock he would run away <laughs> to his meetings and you know things that he was doing and um we did that five days a week and i we finished 38 songs and um he's the one that taught me everything about songwriting even though i'd already had a hit with kiss i was made for loving you and my group, Desmond Child and Rouge, had a hit, Our Love is Insane. It was a dance hit. Um, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Even though my mother was a songwriter, my mother was kind of like a spontaneous songwriter. Like she would put her hands on the piano. She would start saying what she was feeling and kind of start singing. Kind of like I imagine Laura Nero would do or Joni Mitchell. Um, 
On the other hand, Bob wouldn't even let me put my hands on the piano until we had a killer title, or at least know exactly what the song was going to be about. And he would always say, well, you, you don't open your mouth to speak unless you have something to say. Why should you open your mouth to sing if you don't have something to say? And, uh, you know, before I used to just play chords and kind of mumble, hope that my mumbles would sound like some something. And, you know, all of a sudden I'd build something out of nothing. And usually those songs were really bad because, you know, they weren't going they didn't they don't songs don't write themselves so we would go in there and start writing you know and uh he was very meticulous about the rhymes being clean you know at the ends of the each you know and then the inner rhyming between one line and the next a lot of alliteration and inner rhyming and he would go over and over and over a line until it was perfect and then like the sun would come out and then when we'd finish a song, he'd make me sit there while he copied it by hand. You know, if he made a mistake, he'd tear up the page no matter where he was and start over again. And then label the little cassette and everything was completely, you know, perfect, perfectly done. And, um, you know, I make the people I co-write with do the same thing. You know, we, we, we sign an information sheet that's, you know, states the splits. We sign it at the bottom. It has to add up to a hundred percent. I'm ty- I'm usually the one typing out all the lyrics, and I number the lyrics so it, later on when you're comping, it's easy. And or singing, you can say go to line eight. Uh, I want to fix the last word on line eight, and you know stuff like that. And always put the copyright underneath and the PROs and everything because you may never see those people again that you're writing with. I, I mean, I wrote a song with uh, Hanson called Weird, and I think Zach was 16, Taylor was 14, and uh, no, no, Isaac was 16, uh, Taylor was 14, and, and Zach was um, nine. <laughs> and we wrote this amazing song. It's, it's one of my favorite songs. I always perform it when I, when I do shows and, and in the round and all that. It's called Weird. And um, I never saw them again until like a couple of years ago. They were at the ASCAP Expo and they were on stage and they started playing weird. And I just slid, you know, sneaked behind them and I put my hand on, on Taylor's shoulder and he looked up and he went like, wow, you know, it's like we hadn't seen each other since they were little kids. So that's why I always say, you know, get everything tight before everybody scatters to the wind. And of course, uh, you, you've mentioned in, in other interviews that Weird and Bon Jovi's You Want to Make a Memory are these two songs that you absolutely love. And for some reason, you think they didn't get a fair shake or they should have been bigger than they were. And um, I agree with that. So let me let me ask you about this before we start getting to I Was Made for Love You and Dude Looks Like a Lady and all those great songs. You, you, you look at the list. Ricky Martin. Aerosmith, Anna Motion, Cyndi Lauper, Robin Beck, Meatloaf, uh, Michael Bolton, uh, Vince Neil, Bon Jovi, Rat, uh, Leanne Rimes. They are not one genre, one style of music. It is all over the map. So when you approach songwriting for these bands, is it sort of one size fits all where you write a song and then they take it to the studio and they add the bells and whistles that make it sound, you know, hard rock or make it sound country or may, 
or do you have a different different mechanism for you know boyzone and share and, and and rat and and china like how does how do you do it in terms of the different styles well for the most part i been collaborating with the artist ever since I co-wrote I Was Made For Loving You with Paul Stanley. And um, later on, the, their producer, Vinnie Ponce, had joined the song in the studio for the you know, elements that he added. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm with that person. To me, you know, whoever I'm running with, it's like a sacred circle. Nothing exists except for us in that moment. And so usually I'm taking cues from them you know, as to, you know, what they're feeling and what they want to be expressing, how they want to express it. And, you know, a title will, has kind of rhythm onto itself. And that title will kind of generate like the mood of what the song would be like, would be about. Um, the, day, the first day I met Bon Jovi, um, I had a title in my back pocket, You Give Love a Bad Name. And, you know, I went to Richie's Sambora's house where he lived with his parents and I walked in the first floor and right before the kitchen on the left was his little bedroom. It had like, you know, a kiss poster, Farrah Fawcett in the, in the red bathing suit. You know, it was like all kinds of rock paraphernalia. The bed was messy. It was crazy. Uh, shoes thrown everywhere. And then I went into the kitchen and John was on one of those wall phones, those avocado green wall phones, kind of, I imagine with, you know, Doc McGee on the phone, kind of strategizing their takeover of the music industry. And uh, Richie led me down to this dank kind of, you know, silence of the lambs basement where the laundry machine was. And there was a little Formica table with a little keyboard and there was some amps on buzzing and uh, some kind of transoms that were like really muddy and, you know, barely light coming in. And, you know, finally John came down and, uh, you know, we're fooling around. And then I said, well, I have a title. You give love a bad name. And John lit up, you know, and he had a song on his previous album called Shot Through the Heart. And he wasn't giving up on Shot Through the Heart. So he said, Shot Through the Heart and you to blame. And then all the three of us says, you give love a bad name. And then high-fived it, the three of us. And that was the beginning of, you know, the chemistry that the three of us had together. Oh, it's, and it's an incredible how, you chemistry. know, that's how it went. Yeah, and, and it's an incredible... Now, um, the the term song doctor comes up a lot in discussions. Do, do you, are you sort of a collaborator and a, and a co-writer with these with the different artists or or does the record company call you in and say listen you're working with so and so they have some songs that are like eh, we need you to go in there and you know are is that something that you ascribe to the fact that that i'm a song doctor and i fixed up or that's not part of your vocabulary you're a I co-writer very, okay i very rarely like fix songs you know i mean i'll do it Many times it's when I'm executive producing a record, you know, I'll just, you know, kind of listen to songs and say, well, look, why don't you put that second verse as the first? It's stronger and write a new second verse and forget about that B section. It just goes nowhere. Just exit out, go right to the chorus. You know, I, I do things like that to help the artist because the stronger their record is, the better. But, you know, I'm the, the stronger songs are the ones that, 
you know, I've written from scratch and that's what most of them have been. <clears throat> so the song doctor thing, I don't know who came up with that. I think it was like, um, who knows, like a lot of times the bands I wrote with didn't want to admit that they were collaborating with me. And so then they started saying, well, he's like a song doctor or whatever. And the, the critics picked up on it. Uh, because they were like, well, we already wrote the song. He just came in and, and wrote a couple of words, you know, or something. I think Steven Tyler said that about Dude Looks Like a Lady, which is like, it was so funny because Joe Perry did a, uh, an autobiography, which he uh, co-wrote with David Ritz, who also has been co-writing my autobiography. And um, then Steven Tyler did his. And there's stories about the origin of... of um, Dude Looks Like a Lady were completely wrong. I mean, it's like, um, you know, Joe says, oh, well, Desmond came in with the title Dude Looks Like a Lady, which I didn't. And then Stephen says, oh, well, we had Dude Looks Like a Lady, and then Desmond just, like, fixed a couple of words here and there, and then, well, you know, we had to give him a piece of the song, and, you know, it was like one of those. But he spent, like, four pages saying that, and he also described me like I look like Juan Valdez with a mustache. I ne I've never worn just a mustache. I mean, I have beards and stuff. And, you know, it's like his image of me was like crazy. And um, so then a couple of years ago, we were working on a song called Red, White and You for his country record. And uh, he co-wrote <clears throat> co that with one of my writers. And I said, OK, Stephen, this is how it went. I walked in and you guys were working on this reverse get, get, guitar and you were singing Cruisin' for the Ladies. Remember? Oh, right. His book already came out, right? Oh, Cruisin' for the Ladies. Well, yeah, I remember that. And I said, and remember, I told you that I didn't like it. And then you shared that you had gone into a bar with your, with, with Joe and some roadies and stuff. And I mean, you know, they were all kind of like could only drink, you know, sparkling water cause they were all in, you know, AA or something in some kind of program. But sitting at the end of the bar was this luscious looking, you know, mullet, platinum mullet haired, you know, gorgeous thing with like black nails and like a curvy figure and, you know, porcelain skin. And uh, they were all kind of like drawing straws who was going to go up and say hi, right? And all of a sudden, this gorgeous creature turns on the stool, and it's Vince Neal from Motley Crue. And they were all like, oh, my God, shit. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? That dude looks like a lady. And Stephen kept saying, dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And he said, well, that's, where that's what I first started singing. And then Joe said, Oh, but we don't know what that means. I said, hold on a second. Dude looks like a lady. That's a smash title. Because remember, I had been trained by Bob Crew, who wrote Lady Marmalade. And, you know, and all of that inner, you know, tension of opposites. You know, dude looks like a lady. I mean, it's like has everything going for it. And um, I talked them into the storyline of a guy, you know, normal, regular guy you know, hetero guy that goes into a bar on the shore and, you know, sees this gorgeous blonde up on the stage, then goes back and, you know, she pulls out her gun and tries to blow him away. 
And then the thing is, in this song, he doesn't run away. He says, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. And the second verse is, never judge a book by its cover, or who are you going to love by your lover? And it's like, I mean, it like predates all this, you know, GLBT rights and everything, you know, the transgender fluid business, you know, by 30 something years. And so that's the story. And then Stephen looks at me and says, I like your story better than my story. It's like, he didn't even remember it. It's like, so it's like, <laughs> you know, it's hilarious. so crazy. That's hilarious. How, how different people remember things different ways. And of course, you know, I, in his story, I barely contributed to the song. But, you know, if you look at those lyrics, you know, <laughs> walked into a bar on the shore, her picture graced the grime on the door. I could never have come up with that without having written for two years with Bob Crew. You know, voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Ce soir, you know? bien oui, bien oui. Um, let me ask you this about these bands, because I grew up, or, or my my catalog of music is, is the 80s, of course, and you've got Aerosmith Permanent Vacation, and you've got uh, Slippery When Wet, and you've got the Rat Album, and you've got Alice Cooper. You've got all these hard rock bands that you're writing for at that time. Sort of a, in a 10-year span, you're sort of writing for all... Uh, the big bands, you know, kisses in there. Talk to me a little bit about making sure that you don't write a song that sounds too similar to the band, because you know you, you don't want to give Alice too Cooper similar to another band. Well, I mean, yeah, in a sense, like you look at House of Fire, uh, demoed by Bon Jovi, recorded by by Alice Cooper. Was there a point where you're just like, okay, I have to make sure I've got all these hard? No, 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 no. Okay. Hold on a second. You know, House of Fire, I co-wrote with Joan Jett, and then we brought Alice into it. But Bon Jovi Somewhere along the way, before I brought it to Alice, I brought it to, to Bon Jovi, and I said, I co-wrote this with Joan Jett, but, you know, she just felt it sounded so Bon Jovi. So why don't you guys try to demo it? And they demoed it, and it was like, nah, nah, it was not for them. So, you know, so then I... I brought it to Alice and then we tweaked it and made it with Alice Cooper lyrics. And, you know, we developed the song, you know, because it really had a kind of stadium, you know, house of fire, you know, to me, that was very Joan. Uh, but, you know, somehow she, she just, it wasn't kind of like her very unique, you know, kind of style, you know, which was kind of like that girl group sound. It didn't have, it was more like kind of like, like kiss, you know, like heaven's on fire, you know, it kind of had that kind of sing along thing. So that's how that song, uh, was born. And then I was surprised to see that in somewhere along the way, uh, that demo of house of fire ended up on a Bon Jovi, co uh, compilation of demos or something it ended it up was... on the 30th anniversary of uh bad not bad medicine uh new jersey that's what it was the bonus disc i know <laughs> i think he had forgotten you know it was like oh yeah i remember that song i think they had forgotten that they didn't really write it but it's okay whatever but you know um so that's how that 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 particular song was made but I mean, I just saw Alice Cooper two nights ago at Bob Ezrin's birthday party and people flew in from all over 
uh, he was he, he it was his seventy seventieth birthday birthday party, and um, you know Alice and I were talking about how we made trash, and you know he and I sat there and we co-wrote you know every song together, and then I would bring in these bits and pieces from you know other collaborations, you know but you know trash has its sound of its own. He says when he goes on a stage and he starts playing poison the the people just go crazy as soon as they hear the first chords and the 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 kind of weird dissonant guitar lick um you know and so i'm like um you know it's it's so wonderful cuz it's the 30th anniversary of the release of trash this year there better be a deluxe edition because that's one of my all-time favorites. You know, Spark in the Dark, uh, Bed of Nails, I'm Your Gun. I mean, it's right. It's, it's and so it's you know, perfect. the the thing is, is that to write for Alice Cooper is like writing a Broadway show. He very, you know, right at the beginning, he said, you know, I'm Vincent Fournier. Alice Cooper was actually the name of my band, and then people started calling me Alice, and so I've created. Are a, a character that I play, you know, Alice, you know, there are rules because, you know, he's very, you know, spiritual, religious person. His father was a, a minister and, um, you know, this dark creature that he created always has to pay the price. So if he chops off the head on the little doll, then he goes under the guillotine. There's always a retribution for every bad thing he does. And humanity always longs to see these villains and monsters and dark characters because that's the reptilian side of our own psyche. And it's a very kind of satisfying thing. So we don't have to be bad ourselves. He can be bad. And um, that's why entertainment works so beautifully because, you know, uh, we are always chasing uh, hardwired archetypes. And today I was just seeing that, the, you know, uh, somebody's put a play together of um, Marilyn Monroe uh, contrasted with Helen of Troy. Um, and um, can, um, Ben Winsh, Wish, Winshaw is in it, and, um, you know, it's in New York. And um, it's like, there you have it. Helen of Troy and Marilyn Monroe are the same archetype. And it you know, we're hardwired to identify Venus, Helen of Troy, you know, all these, you know, kind of a kind of uh, fertile uh, beauties and uh, other people fall in, in line with that. And then you have Medusas, which, you know, there have been so many Thera Barra, uh, then uh, then you have, you know, somebody like Madonna or Lady Gaga. They, you know, they even wear like snakes on their heads, you know, because we that kind of dangerous, you know, woman is something, another archetype that we long for. And so I studied acting with a very uh, deep, you know, she's almost like a guru, Sandra Seacat. I mean, she is a guru to many of her students. Um, and I started with her when I was in 1979. And I was not an actor. I was just a fly on the wall. And she just let me be in class with Jessica Lang and Christopher Reeves and Mickey Rourke and um, you know, Cicely Tyson, um, I mean like so many, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, all these people were in my, 
in little little class in her living room in in New York in, in this little apartment. And she talked a lot about it about these archetypes. And I've used all of that in innately when I size someone up to work with them, I, I kinda ask myself, what is their archetype? Because she always explained that the closer a person's being aligns themselves with an archetype, the more it's identifiable by the most amount of people because it's hardwired inside of us. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's a, a key help for me because it's like Alice Cooper. He always, he plays the devil, you know, the demon, you know, other, other characters like, um, you know, Ozzy Osbourne also fall into that archetype. We love those characters. It would be out of character for them to sing some sweet, nothing little fluff of a lyric. We, we don't want that from them. But we, we do accept it from, you know, boy bands and things like that who are, you know, pure and innocent. So once you start feeling, you know, what the essence of, a, of an artist is, then you're going to draw on, like, what is the strongest thing for them to be saying at that moment for humanity at this time? Because when you write a song, you write it in the now. So there's always a piece of now in every song. Oh, in fact, so let me, I was going to ask you about Bon Jovi, but that'll bring me to Kiss instead. Since you're, you're, you're trying to sort of understand who the artist is and you're writing in the now, uh, you look at I Was Made For Loving You, and that was sort of the antithesis of what Kiss was up until that point. They were, you know, the black leather and the smokes and the bombs and the burning guitars and the whole thing. And I Was Made For Loving You is certainly not, you know, Deuce or Strutter or, 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 or something like that. Um, talk to me about that collaboration. How did they find you? Was it just because Desmond Child and Rouge were sort of around in the business and you were just sort of meeting each other at, you know, at Studio 54 or, or was it, <laughs> no. you know, <laughs> we could never get into Studio 54. <laughs> right. I tried two times and standing in the line and I just gave up. I never went back. <laughs> Couldn't get in. But, but how did you get, because you take this really sort of Americana hard rock band and you change what they are by, by doing this disco song, if I can call it that. And, and where do you meet? Where do you meet Paul Stanley? Where do you get into contact with Vinnie Poncia? How, how does that well, collaboration come together? Last year I was honored with the ASCAP Founders Award and it was so exciting. First of all, they surprised me and had Alice Cooper and his full band open open my segment, uh, you know, which was at you know at the end of the show, playing Poison, and um, I just like I was wowed. It was like this is your life. And then Paul Stanley came up on stage and he said, you know, the first time I saw Desmond Child was on a poster with these three gorgeous girls, Desmond Child and Rouge, and you know he he was intrigued by you know. The, our image and the androgyny and you know so he went and started going around wherever we were playing and he'd show up and then we made friends we were hanging backstage and uh, I didn't really know that much about Kiss all I knew about was like you know Peter Allen and and you know Elton John and <laughs> you know Joni Mitchell, Laura Nero, Carol King, song singer songwriters right that's all I knew and Kiss was, I thought that was for little kids, you know, or something. And um, 
you know, he said, hey, you know, why don't we try writing a song together? And uh, I said, okay. And then I said, oh, but you have to write a song with me for our group. And so we wrote a song called uh, The Fight. And, uh, uh, and then we wrote, um, I went to SIR and they were rehearsing and they took a break and there was a big grand piano off to the side and I sat down and started playing these chords that I had been fooling around with for a while. And this kind of like, kind of dark, you know, kind of, to me it was dark, you know, tonight, you know, it's like vampire I'm going to give it all to you, you know, in the darkness, you know, that's what I want to do, whatever the lyrics are. And, um, you know, it's, to me, it was like very much like the idea of like the, they look like monsters. They look like vampires. Their faces were pale and blood dripping down the, down the side. So they had that kind of demonic archetype. So, you know, that's how that song started, you know, with these big chords and, um, you know, this kind of drama. It was like theater. And at the same time, I had bought um, a, one of the first early drum machines. And I had started, you know, trying to combine dance with rock and also storytelling so if you listen to you know uh, i was made for loving you it has like all of that going for it i it was at the very you know this is before you know six years before prince or madonna or any or george michael or any you know or longer eight years before you know and you know when you look at living on a prayer it's same thing the big chords and then, you know, heavy metal rock with kind of like a R&B, you know, dun, 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 kind of like almost disco rhythm underneath. And then a story, like a singer-songwriter story. So those three elements were things that I had been playing with, you know, ever since I was in college at NYU. And with my group, Desmond Child and Rouge, we were trying to create a new style. And also adding Latin elements like congas and stuff like that, which actually were st- were being used in disco. And and so, but in my mind, because I'm Latin and I'm Cuban, I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was thinking of it, oh, this is the music of the streets, of the West Side. And our, our opening song on our first album was called West Side Pow Wow. Same thing, big chords, you know, the sounds of the, of the jungle, of the concrete jungle, and, you know, trying to evoke dramatic images. And, you know, when you listen to Live in La Vida Loca and The Cup of Life, when I went back to Miami, I brought everything that I had learned from Kiss and, and, and Bon Jovi and Aerosmith in Rat, you know, these kind of stadium rock bands i brought it to latin music and there was this kid that was looking to cross over into the american market but i had seen videotape of him of a million people showing up in central buenos aires aerial shot to hear him play and i said oh my god we have to make latin music for a million a million people to sing along with and that's how you know i brought all of that to latin music and it was you know gloria stefan you know, was like, and Emilio, they, they were the first, you know, to bring this, this crossover sound of Latin to pop. And then, you know, 15 years later, you know, I helped to reignite the Latin music explosion, you know, me and Draco Rosa, my collaborator with Ricky Martin. 
Yeah, and it was a terrific, terrific. Uh, what we, not a reemergence, but a, 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 the scene. Um, all right, listen, since because we're we're at fifty minutes, and I know that that I, I can't keep you on here till four in the morning. Let me ask you just. Oh, well, really, if you're going to talk about me, you can. <laughs> well, we're doing good so far, but. Uh, <laughs> um, I hope I've been answering your questions. I seem to kind of like pivot off to strange directions. It's okay. It's because it, something makes me think about something else. I, I actually, I, you'd think I I was stoned. I am not stoned. No, in fact, I see it more. <laughs> I see it more as the creative process because from from different songwriters and stuff, I see a lot of connections and like, oh, this goes to that and that goes to this and and it seems to be sort of uh, I don't want to say the pattern, but that seems to be what songwriters that I've spoken to do. But uh, let's talk about Gina Velvet. Uh, Maria Vidal, the inspiration yes. of uh, Living on a Prayer. She is the Gina. I, I unfortunately do not know who the Tommy is in the song. Uh, Tommy is me. Ah. Because, okay. you know, I, when I brought the idea of these two characters, I, I said Johnny and, and Gina, because my real name is John Charles Barrett. And so I lived, Maria was my girlfriend for like four years, and we where, you know, we, we started Desmond Child and Rouge together. And, you know, this is before I realized I was more gay than I was bi, you know, so <laughs> right. it was something like that. And, but, you know, we, you know, she's still, we're still very close. And, you know, she's the godmother of, of my kids. Uh, John Bon Jovi is one of the other godfathers. Yes. That um, was in the movie actually. Or, yeah, yeah. Or was in the clip. Yeah. where Maria, Maria, you know, um, she worked in a in a little diner called Once Upon a Stove, where they had singing waiters and waitresses, and her her stage name was Gina Velvet, and so that's where I got Gina, because she had dark hair and everything, and everybody thought, you know, she's very, you know, spunky and sexy, and everyone called her Gina for Gina Lola Brigida. So that's where Gina came from. And then when I suggested Johnny and Gina, John said, well, it can't be Johnny because it'll sound like I'm singing about myself. Oh, uh, it was, oh, okay, uh, Tommy. It was like a sound alike. And that's like, that's where Tommy and Gina came from. So talk to me about this song, because we just talked before about it had, I forget how many, six billion spins or whatever it was, but an incredible amount. Uh, you have also said publicly that it is sort of your pre- piece de resistance. It is sort of the one that you are proudest of. It, it, and, and I don't know if that's fair. To, I mean, that's how I understood it, right? You, this is the one, the living on a prayer. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a song that, you know, it's more than a song. Right. I mean, it, it, it really is more than a song. And I remember one night that I was with John and we were, you know, all the kids were asleep and we were having our wine, sipping, killing time. What is it? Sipping wine, killing time, trying to solve life's mysteries. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, he raised his glass to me and he said, you know, we wrote a song that's not just a song. It means so much to so many people. And he looked at me and he said, thank you. Do you know how, how few artists have ever said thank you? You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's probably just John at this point, because there there seems to be, all right, write us a song, let's go sell a few records, and oh yeah, for the thank you. But okay, but what what is it about that song that has resonated? Is it just, 
the story of of the two characters and musically it doesn't really matter because I've heard John and I've even heard uh, a version of you doing it on piano and you can and, and it's still powerful regardless of how it's performed or was it just the well, music? Well, I think or... it's 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 the melody right. uh, with the words because it's a song of hope. So like the sad parts are down and then there's kind of like a you know some hope you know we got to hold on to what we got kind of kind of like that this this the uh, kind of mechanics of the song kind of like pick up and then it explodes into this joyous you know hymn hymnal of hope and um you know it has an amazing philosophy because it says it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not and in the Go go eighties. It did make a difference if you made it or not. If you didn't make it, you're a loser, you know. And the song says, you know, we're gonna, you know, for love, we'll give it a shot. And so, that's all. That's all we can do as people. We can just do the very best that we can, and you know, as long as we stay positive, and 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 keep, you know, going after the things that that matter to us, you know, taking care of our families you know, uh, trying to make a better world, um, you know, doing the best we can at our jobs. And it, it just keeps resonating. I mean, I remember getting a letter from a guy that said he was going to kill himself and he pulls up, you know, at the bridge, you know, no one's around. He just jumps out of the car. He leaves the, you know, the car on radio on and just right as he's tipping, getting ready to tip over to jump, you know, uh, living our prayer comes on and that was his favorite song. So he said, Oh fuck, you know, well, it's my favorite song. I, okay. Let that be the last song I ever hear. So he goes back in the car. By the time it got to the modulation, he drove home. That's a great story. That's a so, great story. You know, a song like that, you know, has given a lot of people, hope to get through, you know, with the letters we get, you know, through, get through, you know, illnesses or uh, the loss of a loved one, you know, and, um, you know, that's, that's the most you could possibly do, you know, by writing a song. Um, I, I see that we're in an hour and I'm getting a little punch drunk. So I'll ask a couple more questions and maybe we can reconvene for a part two. One of the favorite things that you've done, uh, other than Bon Jovi, other than Alice Cooper, it's so much. But you did a, you were per, part of an album called Humanity Hour One with the Scorpions. Uh, songs like Three, Two, One, uh, you know, Are You Ready to Rock and all. Absolutely fantastic. What was it like uh, working on that album? Because it came out in 2007. Um, I think it's fair to say sort of past the Scorpions' heyday. Uh, and yet, you're working on this album with, with, with Rudolph and with Klaus. Um, talk to me a little bit about that album and working with the Scorpions. Cause it really is to me a masterpiece of an album. There is not a song on there that I do not like. Well, so many people told me not to do it. You know, they said, you know, the Scorpions are over. They're so like this and that. And, you know, I always loved the Scorpions, and I said, no, I'm doing it. I'm going to do this. And I had gotten this uh, inspiration, you know, um, uh, to do this 
kind of apocalyptic theme. So every song has to do with, you know, kind of like a world where, you know, robots take over, you know, and that, you know, somehow humanity, our one, like this is our one, like where we are, where we're at right now from the beginning of, you know, picking up the first club and starting the first fire to now that's our one, you know, to atomic bomb. And so, you know, it has like this, like, and, and it was so exciting to do it once we all agreed that we were going to do something that, like that, because before they were, you know, writing, you know, kind of songs like, you know, about sex and, you know, stuff like that, you know, like just hot chicks and this and that. And of course, early on, you know, they had, you know, songs that I thought had more meaning you know, and, um, you know, touched people more. And, you know, before we started the record, I made um, uh, Klaus go and take voice lessons. Um, and he, with, you know, uh, Eric Vitro, who I went to college with, <laughs> and he's like the vo- voice, voice coach to the stars. And I wanted him to sound like he did, when, like, when he started out with pure voice, but I think a lot of the touring had made his voice very raspy. And I said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a record until you can sound pure, make pure tones. And it didn't take long within a few months. He was singing like, you know, like the beginning. And, and I don't know if you noticed that his, how great his voice sounds on this record. That album is perfect. It, it is absolutely and, perfect. And my collaborator, James Michael, I mean, he, you know, so we did this kind of song camp with Eric Bazilian and James Michael and, and the Scorpions, and we did it in Nashville. And we wrote all of those songs all, you know, at every corner of the room, you know, like a song I didn't write, but that is my favorite. It's like, we were born to fly. You know, it's like, oh, I just love that song. And, um, you know, I think that it was kind of hard, you know, getting their management. I don't know if they were with the same manager or any of that, but to understand what we were doing, because, you know, I, I also art directed, um, the, everything with, uh, Liam Carlson and, um, and he, um, created all those images of the the female robots where you can see the the insides and I had them like in bunkers and also I didn't want them dressed like with leopard shirts and chains and cowboy boots and you know (laughs) I said no you guys let's make a record where you just dress like normal people you know not in in costumes just like real artists and I don't know if their fans liked that or didn't like that. It wasn't really a successful uh, commercial record. But I think that I brought out, you know, things in them that, you know, they wanted to be saying. And also something that maybe someday in time, like I always thought, maybe that could be the soundtrack of a, of a futuristic movie. You know, all those songs, because they're so built like that. That would be incredibly cool. And, and there are a couple of other songs down there that are bonus tracks like Cold and stuff, which is such a great track. I mean, just 
unbelievably great. In fact, I look at your entire discography or songography, if we can say that. Uh, everything's a hit. Um, and and I, we're at an hour and three, so let me, let me finish. Okay, on... can I just talk about one of my most favorite songs of all time that I've ever written? Yes, absolutely. And, then, and I was going to ask you two other questions, if that's okay. But go ahead. What's your favorite song that you've ever written? Well, aside from Prayer and Weird, um, I wrote a song this year. I solely wrote it for Barbara Streisand. It's a song called Lady Liberty. And it's on her new album, Walls. It's track five. <laughs> Just go right to track five. Listen to my song. And um, it's... I. I had been writing it in my head for weeks, and then I, I had my programmer sitting in one corner of my studio, and I was at the piano, and then whoosh, it all came out, and it was like giving birth. I mean, it was like, it's a, it's a tribute to the Statue of Liberty, and uh, she heard it, and it was a go. I had been submitting songs to her for 30 years and never got anywhere. This one had everything going for it for her voice and everything and i produced it and it was pr producing her and you know we had a gorgeous um you know demo singer who sang it and she liked the demo singer then she got then she got into the song and it was like wow the gravitas that she brought to the song that she brings to the song she made it come to life and um it's just like one of the most proudest things i've ever done you know, okay, now, see, now you're going to make me ask more questions, but let me ask you about that, because a lot of folks go, man, I would really love to write with Jim Valance. I would really love to write with Holly Knight. I would really love to write with Desmond Child and, and, and all these great, great songwriters. But as a songwriter, is there, other than Barbara Streisand now, an artist out there, you go, oh, man, if I could just get, you know, whatever, Mick Jagger and the Stones to, to do one of my songs, that... Do you still have that sort of like, you know, 12, year, 12 years old kind of like excitement of, if I could just get, and, and if so, who would that be? Who's, who's this, the one person that you would like to get or one artist or group or that you just would love them to just consider to write one of your songs or, or record, I should say, one of your songs? You know, like I love all these new artists, you know, like Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande, who I worked with when she was she was in one of my workshops of my musical Cuba Libre like when she was 16 and we've seen her grow up and you know she's magnificent and um you know Sia um is uh Sia's she, great I mean I'd love to work with her and and um you know I I love uh um just oh god like Sam Smith, I love him. I love uh, Troy, Troy Sivan, uh, Dua Lipa. I mean, there, there's so many new, gorgeous, like incredible, fresh sounding uh, artists. Yep. And to me, it's never about style. It's about message. So I can write in any style because I can help the person dive into the words and bring out their best selves. So that I can do forever. So I'm, I'm not quitting anytime soon. I have to say, by the way, I saw Dua Lipa at a festival in Montreal oh. called Oceaga. It was about 100,000 people, and I had never heard of her until then. I saw the performance up 
above, you know, sort of in the corporate box or whatever. And the way the audience below just moved in waves and the way she it was mesmerizing and and she really is magical and that that I don't mean to be but that girl is going to have like a 50 year career. It was just spectacular. It really was. I, I'm in love with her. I got to see her in person. She walked past me at the Clive Davis pre-Grammy party, and I didn't realize she was so tall. And she just walked past me, and I was like, oh. I just, she's like, she's ethereal. I just absolutely love her. Oh, real deal. Absolute real deal. And, and you know, when you can have that effect on a guy like me who's an older rock dude, that's because there's a magic there. And it really is special. Well, there's always there's always some, you know, like look at Lady Gaga. I mean, she's just doesn't ever stop. And she just keeps doing incredible things because she's a true artist. I mean, she plays, she writes, she sings, she's inspired, she, she gets it. And there'll always be somebody new that's born that has it. You know, there aren't that many geniuses. You know, we, I mean, we're inundated by a lot of music. A lot of it's very kind of brainless. A lot of it's generated by producers who aren't artists and they just, you know, get somebody famous maybe to sing on it with them or what something. And, um, but, you know, when somebody's a true artist, you know, like Imogen Heap, who I got, you know, to write with a long time ago, we wrote a song with um, um, Guy Zigsworth when she was still with um, with him doing Fru Fru, um, you know, it's like, oh. And the thing is, is that she taught me something. I thought, oh, well, I'm Mr. You know, Hits, and she really didn't even ha have a hit yet. I think her first Fru Fru record hadn't even come out. And, um, you know, and we were writing a song, and she, I said, well, something about the night. And she says, I won't sing the word night. It's very naff. It's like, you won't sing the word night? No, it's, it's overused. I, I, I will not sing the word night. And it's like, wow. And so then what she did come up with was so fresh. And it's like, ah, you see? You know, it's like I wasn't digging in hard enough or deep enough or, you know, you know, I was like relying on my little bag of tricks, you know, in my back pocket. And, you know, ever since then, I'm never, any session I ever do, I, I'm, I'm there and I drive people crazy. I said, okay, that's good, but let's keep digging underneath that line. And sure enough, like two or three passes through, all of a sudden something surfaces that's gold. And, you know, that's, that's true creativity and not settling. And that's why, you know, I really respect, you know, her. I mean, look, look at Sade's music. It never grows old, never grows old. I saw her at Staples Center like a few years ago, and it was like, wow, her show and the songs and her band and the feeling, you know, it was majestic. And uh, she's somebody I'd love to work with. Oh, my God. Oh, that would be great. Uh, and, oh, my uh, God. Yeah, that would be great. Now. Um, we're, we're at an hour 10, so I'm going to finish with this question and, and no, it's not going to be about the thong song, which is 
that was such a great song back in the day. Uh, no, but uh, jokes aside, uh, just quickly, you, you know, Slippery When Wet comes out, massive success. New Jersey comes out, even bigger success. The band gets burnt out on the road. They make a documentary, uh, uh, Access All Areas, etc., about how it, it became... What was it like coming back with the band and, and writing for Keep the Faith? Uh, it, it, I had a feeling that they were sort of like over each other. It, it, it was exhausted. It was tired. What was the pressure like going into that and coming up with the song like Keep the Faith and I'll Sleep When I'm Dead and, 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 and sort of relaunching the second, the second side of the Bon Jovi career? Was there pressure or was it like, eh, we're just going to write a song. It's just a song. It's not, no big deal. What year was that? 92. Had Nirvana already come out? Yes, in 91. Okay, see, there was like before Nirvana and after Nirvana. And, you know, it was like Elvis looking at the Beatles, you know, on TV. It was like, holy shit, I'm over. You know, it was like, like music just changed. You know, all of a sudden, these grunge bands that had no skill, they were like art students that could play three chords and they had, you know, kind of cute faces and long hair and they, they, that would just fall in their, you know, in front of their face. They called them shoegazers. They had zero skills, but they kind of understood something, something raw, something, something different. And I think that, you know, it, it was, a, you know, a kind of defining moment so we all had to kind of look at what we were going to, you know, how we were going to approach what we were doing. And, um, you know, so I had fun, you know, working on that record. But, you know, I think a thing also happens is like you can't all of a sudden change styles when your fans like you for what you do. So, you know, there was some experimentation, you know, going this way, going that way to try to, you know, kind of come bring something fresh, something new. But in the end, you know, it's like those initial songs that define, you know, that generation. And, you know, of course, you know, are rediscovered, you know, by every generation. You know, same thing with Alice Cooper singing, I'm 18. He's, he's like in his seventies. Okay. He's singing, I'm 18. You know, it's like, he's not going to sing, I'm 80. <laughs> but um you know working on the, on that record i i didn't feel that there was you know that there was any problem it was just like come on we're going to do this we're going to kind of we're going to kill again and we're going to write some great songs and you know there was this energy you know because john is you know very optimistic and richie also you know has a very happy go lucky personality and um you know, so I never felt that there was that there was a problem. But for me, you know, I started to see that wow, so many fans fell away, and you know, the bands that I worked with are still working because their songs were good. You know, I didn't write Janie's Got a Gun. I didn't write Wanted Dead or Alive, or you know, many songs that were hits that are fantastic. You know, written by the bands I work with. But you know, I feel like I I. I helped, you know, to to keep, you know, bringing in songs that that are still in their show. And um, you know, if you have good songs, you can keep going. Like Tony Bennett, 
you know, he has great songs to sing. So who doesn't want to go see Tony Bennett? But, you know, if somebody doesn't have good songs, then they stop going. And the song is the thing. You know, the song is the thing that stands the test of time. Really does, and that's what keeps these bands going. And uh, just real quick, Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life, uh, co-written with David Ritz. Um, uh, unless I'm mistaken, that's coming out soon, right? No. no. Um, probably the first quarter of 2020. Because, okay. you know, there's still a lot. We still haven't edited. We've finished the book, but we still haven't found an editor. And uh, we're still, you know, kind of in the midst of it because, um, you know, I'm still tweaking things and stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm planning on rolling it out, you know, first quarter 2020. And I've been performing. I just got finished doing right. uh, Lincoln Center's American Songbook um, with a full band. And last year I did, you know, I, oh, I did a show called Live at the Cape. Uh, for PBS, it's a national show yep. produced by Laura Savini, and that's going to be out in mid mid June. So um, you know, and then I have my live album that I recorded at Studio Fifty Four um, downstairs. See? I'm still not in Studio Fifty Four. <laughs> it's called Fifty Four Below, and uh, Feinstein's Fifty Fifty Four Below, and uh, I did three nights there, and we've we've been uh, combining those nights. And then I'm also going to be dropping new songs, new songs, fresh songs that no one's ever heard before with me as the artist. Plus, Desmond Child and Rouge, uh, this is our 40th anniversary of the release of our first two albums and uh, BMG's re-releasing the remastered versions of those. And oh, we're wow. going to be dropping singles from Desmond Child and Rouge too. So the world hasn't heard the last of me yet. Oh, that is, that is great. And, Oh my God, I have so many questions. But uh, w w were you okay being a songwriter, or or were you a performer who who just couldn't make it as a performer and then turned to songwriting, or did your career sort of end up the way you wanted? Because listen, we are not going to argue with your success. It is unbelievable. Um, but were you a frustrated singer songwriter who became a songwriter, or a very happy, smart songwriter and preferred being at home? rather than on the road. No, I'm a frustrated superstar. <laughs> and um, the thing that happened was that some things happened after my group broke up. We even went on Saturday Night Live as the guest, and I lost my, um, my confidence. Um, like some, you know, some very difficult things that are in my book. And uh, I joined some kind of new age cults that kind of sent me sideways. But all the while, I kept doing my day job, you know, writing Living on a Prayer and stuff like that with bands and figuring. And then I tried doing, a, you know, when I met my husband and, you know, I got my life together, I tried doing a record called Discipline. And um, the thing is that, 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 you know, I wasn't really being myself on that record. I wanted success so bad that I was just kind of not, it's, it's not a record that I love, you know, it, it's, I don't feel like it's me at all. I was trying to create something cause I said, look at all these people I helped to make big stars. I'm going to sing songs like them. And I didn't take the time off to, to write something that was personal and truthful. 
So, you know, I'm in a whole other place now. And then, you know, life happened and then I just kept working and then we had our kids and they're 17, they're going to be 17 soon. And, um, you know, I, I just keep, keep doing my day job, but you know, that's why I said, okay, when my kids, you know, fly the coop, I'm going to fly the coop. I'm going to grab my husband. We're going to go all around the world and I'm going to sing my heart out. And, um, you know, Hey, they don't know I'm not famous in China, but I bet a lot of those people over there know my music and don't even know who really, who sang them originally. So if I go over there and, you know, I'm going to be the ultimate cover band of original songs. I would love to see that show in Montreal. Just to sit down and see you perform these songs would be spectacular. And I will say this. Uh, I know you said that you want to make a memory as a song that didn't get its due. But there's another one that you wrote with Bon Jovi, Army of One. It is it is spectacular. And uh, Desmond, thank you so much for, for all your time today. As you can see, I could probably do another two hours, but uh, but thank you for, for giving me an <laughs> hour and 20 minutes. Thank you so minutes. much, Mitch. Yes, and, absolute uh, pleasure. You know, when my book comes out, I'll come back and and tell more. Oh, so I, I, I want to read. I want, yeah, the dirt. Well, the, hey, Motley Crue, the dirt is that run. No, but I do want to read that book. I think it's going to be a compelling story, and, and we will discuss it at length. Um, and hopefully there'll there'll be some stories about how all these different songs were written because there's two. I mean, I've never seen a songwriter have a a Wikipedia page only for his songs. <laughs> you know, uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. Adios, people. Hi, Desmond. Bye. Perfect. That was great. Thank you, everybody. All right, darling. You're welcome, Bobby. Lovely to hear your voice. I, I think he quit. I think he quit on us.